Welcome to the Imposture to Unstoppable podcast, where physicians can learn how to overcome imposter syndrome and create the career of their dreams. Hello, hello. Today I am interviewing Dr. Martina Ziegenbein, and she is a board-certified fellowship-trained rheumatologist with a special interest in lupus and fibromyalgia. In fact, she also has a podcast and it is a coach for people with fibromyalgia. She can be found at www.winningatfibromyalgia.com, and she also has a podcast called Winning at Fibromyalgia. Be sure to check that out and enjoy our conversation today. And don't forget, if you haven't yet signed up for my play program preview, which basically means you tell me a few things about yourself in about five minutes through email, and I will tell you three events that you can do that are local near you that are for fun, and I'll also give you the science behind why you should do it and how it will improve your life. Be sure to check that out by clicking the link in the notes of the interview today. All right, have a good one and enjoy. Martina, I'm so excited to have you here. I think this has been a long time coming and I'm glad we were able to finally find time in our schedule to talk. So through all of your lenses, you've had a lot of training as a physician and now you are a podcaster and a coach. I would love to hear about how self-doubt and imposter syndrome has impacted you, your patients, your clients any and all of it. Uh, yes. Yeah, so thank you for having me. I have been looking forward to it for a while. So um, it's such a um, kind of like a tricky question because I have struggled with self-doubt even before I um, became, be, be, so just to let your listeners know, I'm a rheumatologist and I, over the past year, I embraced um my love and hate relationship with uh, fibromyalgia, caring for fibromyalgia patients, I decided to steer more towards loving relationship with that. And I struggle with fibromyalgia myself. So that has been kind of a new development. I have been trying to and ask my employer to let me see more fibromyalgia patients. So, but even before then, I have always struggled with self-doubt and um, it has to do a lot with in my opinion, me being a foreign medical graduate and um, not really doing well. It started right away in the first year of residency. I um, That was already 20 years ago. <laughs> and um, I basically, my internal medicine attending uh, had me fail my like mid-year at this was right. Like she gave me evaluation right around Christmas time and my family was visiting from Slovakia. So it was, and she also happened to be my attending, my clinic attending, like outpatient clinic was also my uh, hospital rounds attending. Um, I don't know how they call it now when you're doing uh, doing hospital service. And she failed me both. (laughs) So I, um, I felt like defeated. I felt low. And I'm like, I'm, so that's when it started, like, I'm not good enough. I'm sure there were um, seeds of lack of, uh, self-belief and um, self-confidence before but c- that kind of solidified like oh I'm not good enough who who do I think I am that I thought I was going to do residence in the United States and uh, it can, kind of just started there and I was able to overcome it um, like the happy ending of the story is that I went into remediation I was meeting with a program director <laughs> excuse me once a week to review um, you know, like literature, like review the topics that were relevant and or that we were going through in our curriculum, in our core curriculum. And um, 
I don't really feel I had a lot of problems on my clinical rotations, but I I had major trouble with uh, the in how to say in service tests uh, in service like it's a precursor for step three. That's mm-hmm. uh, and then in the third year residency, I um, presented a clinical vignette um, and it was a rheumatology case. And I won state competition. And so I proceeded to the national level, the American College of Physicians. And I was awarded one of the 10 best posters there too. And all of a sudden people start like attending, started congratulating me when I came back. And uh, one of them in particular said, I wasn't sure that, you know, you were going to make it to residency and you really proved yourself. And I'm like, wow, but I'm still the same person. And the, I didn't tell him that. I'm just thinking that, like, I'm still the same person. And the only change really is that, yes, I studied, but I studied before too. And it's really just about presentation. And then it would appear to repeat, the history repeated itself. I don't I don't handle change very well. So when I moved from fel- uh, residency to fellowship, I didn't adjust very well. I basically, I think I struggle with change. So I don't, I don't work at my best. And my fellowship was not super... I don't want to say friendly because that's not the case, but I didn't feel very supported. And again, I felt my lack of pedigree that I didn't, you know, I didn't go to Ivy League institutions. I was a foreigner, like foreign graduate. And um, again, through not a great vibe, but through somebody else who was familiar and privy to discussions of the faculty, I was learned that, yes, there were at least two people who did not think I, I belong there. So that doesn't help, you know, when you feel already like you're having a hard time to not fit in, but to feel like you belong. And they tell you, yes, you, they didn't think. That, so it was kind of, a, I had a lot of uh, <laughs> a lot of bad memories slash kind of to overcome. I'm not sure whether I'm answering your question. <laughs> yeah, you, you are. And, and a couple of things I want to highlight here is the first thing is that it's such a habit of our brain to focus on how, what makes us different. And especially through the lens of imposter syndrome, which is a normal part of the human condition, as, as you know, it's, it's like our brain is, is on the lookout for how might I be, how am I different from those around me? And instead of the dialogue being what makes me different is what makes me special. And it's a, it's a good thing that I'm different. Instead, our brains automatically go to different being bad. So I think right. that you're not alone in that, right? It's like, okay, this is how I'm different. And in your case, it was being a four medical graduate. So therefore that means that instead of having more to offer in a different perspective, somehow you're less than. You're so right. Like you hit the nail on the on its head because in the meantime, over the years, but it took me a long time. I embraced that aspect of mm. me as a foreigner. They noticed my accent. They asked me, you know, questions about my origin and the language. And we share we connect on a level that is based on curiosity and, you know, it forms and it's kind of, it's a basis for a relationship because you have to, like, you have to ask questions to your patients in order to connect. So this is this, like, it opens an avenue. But when I finally embrace that, when I, st- when I stopped being upset that I, I had an accent and that I had a, you know, it wasn't bad anymore. You're completely correct. And I'm so impressed that you picked up on it right away. I guess that's what you do. So I shouldn't be uh, surprised, <laughs> but basically that's exactly what it was. I assumed that being a foreign graduate because I, you know, didn't pass my first evaluation, that uh, it meant bad. And I refused to embrace the positive aspects of it. And yeah. So thank you for mentioning that. 
Yeah. And I think that's important for so many people to hear and be reminded of. And it happens all the time is that people, when you realize that what you used to think is a weakness is actually a strength, it is life changing. And that sounds a little bit dramatic, but I really, it is that powerful for you to be like, oh, actually what makes me different is my, is my superpower and not a detriment to me at all. So on the, on that topic, thank you for like the segue on that topic. I was going to mention that. So another part of me that I have been, it's been difficult for me to embrace that is my impulsivity. So one side of impulsivity is to react. Like I, I get a trigger or I, I get triggered and I don't put a pause, which that's what I'm still learning to do on a much better, but I, and I react. But the other co- side of the coin of impulsivity is my ability to be empathetic and compassionate with patients when they tell me a sad story I feel it and I cry with them and they feel heard they feel mm-hmm. connection with me they feel like the, their physician is paying attention and cares about them so it establishes like a different level of care that's why it's so always when I have moved it's so hard to leave patients because of the connections and I was able to establish them because of my because of my personality because of the part of who I am so um Thank you for mentioning that. Yeah. And impulsivity and empathy in medicine, I feel like it's like beaten out of us, right? <laughs> like, cause I'm the same way. I'm, I feel like I'm a very emotional person and I had to almost re teach myself how to be, how to incor- incorporate that side into my profession. Because I think, unfortunately, our training says that you can't show emotion. You have to be professional, isn't impulsive. And I think that's totally wrong. And in my opinion, the more authentically you who you can be, you know, wearing the quote unquote white coat is, you know, the better physician that you are. I so love that you're saying that because yeah, we still can be, we still can say, yeah, let's be professional, like within the realm of what is appropriate, but it doesn't mean not showing love and compassion for our patients, you know, but so professional to me would be don't use foul language or, or don't raise your voice or like, um, but like, yeah, we are, they, you're correct. They are assuming or not there. The system kind of asks for us of us to be robots, like, mm-hmm. like, and kind of take a cookie cutter approach to patients. And I'm tired of it. So yeah. I, I'm not doing that anymore. And I think that's why I connect so well with patients. And um, I think uh, I, well, I'm glad you're spreading the message and raising awareness so that all physicians know, not just women physicians, but hopefully it gets yeah. to all physicians, especially trainees. Trainees need to hear it because it would have changed. My, well, I don't, I don't regret anything, but I think if I had heard back then that it's okay to be you, it's okay to show feelings, even though crying may not be considered positive, but if it connects you with the patient, it it would have changed my life, you know, in a different um, kind of way. Absolutely. And speaking about those in training or maybe early in in their career, I wanted to go back to the, the memory and the story about the failure that you had in, in residency and looking back now, knowing what you know about yourself and about life in general, what would, what advice would you offer someone who's maybe is going through something like that now where they really, they either have failed or they feel like they failed and is really, is feeling devastated by that? Yeah, such a good question. And honestly, what I have found, because I have had more such failures and I have made the same mistake over and over again until I, honestly, until I um, 
until I joined EWP, I have to mm. say, and I had undergone a lot of coaching over the past year, but the mistake I have been making, and I think uh, what you're asking about is that the person, uh, so I failed my rotation, my internal medicine rotation, both outpatient and the hospital um, rounds and um, hospital service. And what I made it mean is that I was not good enough as a person mm. instead of saying, listen, Martina, you're still a rock star and amazing for what you have been able to do and get to America all by yourself with, you know, very little support, but you have some deficits, maybe in knowledge, maybe in presentation, maybe in communication. It doesn't mean anything about you as a person. And honestly, if I had, if somebody had told me that back then, I think I would have made progress much, much sooner because nobody had sit me down and said, Martina, you're still amazing or you're still a good person, but you have, you know, you're editing your way of communicating, you're editing your way of um, learning or retaining information. You're like, okay, I, yeah, that would be kind of in a nutshell, basically telling and making the person realize, and if it, if, if they need to write it down, I, I had to initially write it down, like what makes me a great person? So it's not me as a person, but it's, you know, so either behaviors or way of presenting myself and that's so that's so it's not my worthiness online but it's um like way of presenting myself you know it's a behavior that i was editing mm-hmm. and not my self-worth and that's you know it's it's caused damage over the years and i'm still like i'm still working with that i have to admit to you that's being vulnerable right here is that i'm not where i want to be yet but i'm working on it every day every day yeah. Yeah, and I think this is a this is a really good example of you know thinking about the gap and the gain. I don't know if you've read that book, but so Sorry, often haven't finished. <laughs> yeah, so often, and especially in medicine, we're constantly looking to this perfect example of who we think we are, and we're judging our our current self to that future ideal instead of what we actually should be doing is looking at where we are now and then looking back a year, five years, ten years, and recognizing how far we've come, and that's actually where the measurement should be and not this future ideal because the message is that the ideal quote-unquote ideal version of you is is a direction it's not a goal so that 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 ideal is ever ever changing and you'll never actually reach that ideal so that's not the point so when we judge ourselves against that that's why we feel like crap all the time Thank you for this reminder, Christine, so much, because, and I think we need these reminders. I, I love what you just said, because, and I'm going to write it down when we're done. This is truly what I need to remind myself, how far I've come and mm-hmm. consider this uh, a journey rather than, you know, I'll be that when I get there, like I'll be now all of a sudden. So I really appreciate you mentioning that. Yeah. And we forget, right? We're all works in progress. But even, even if you look at yourself from the year, the last year from now and really feel that. I think that we'd all be so amazed by, wow, I really have some come so far in such a short amount of time. I wonder whether, I mean, I don't know whether it's okay to ask you, but like, do you have a practice of that? Do you have a journal where you do it every day or do it once a week, once a month when you look back or like, what would be a, like, I'm very like compartmentalizing, compartmentalized Mm -hmm. type person. Like it makes sense when I have it um, like all organized. My apartment is not great, but how do you, yeah. how do you do that yourself? If I may ask, I mean, I, I know you're the one asking questions. I'm so, oh, no, that's, <laughs> it's okay. I think that I have a, a combination, a combo practice of journaling. Sometimes I'm okay. better than others than like actually writing stuff down or I'll go back and look at my last journal 
from like last year and just really remember who I was at that time and feeling it. And that is like a huge, I try to do that at least once or twice a year because it's really an amazing thing to do. And then another thing that I've now gotten myself in the habit of doing is when I'm like in the moment and present, I will sometimes in that moment, like when I'm really feeling something in the moment or really feeling a joy, I will remind myself that like, this is what I was longing for a year ago, or this version of me is what I was, is what I was hoping I would become. And so it's not, that's not as specific, but I, I, it just like enhances my joy in the moment. Cause I'm like, I'm present and I'm feeling the joy. And then I'm allowing myself to remember the past version of me that wanted that. Thank you so much for my, I love it. I love what you just said, because I completely relate to what you're saying. You're feeling it and you're like reminding yourself, this is the person you wanted to be a year ago. And now you are, and you feel it and you're enhancing. I love it. And you actually just gave me an idea of what I will do. I have like a, these huge folders and I sometimes basically I have it like business stuff, like coaching stuff like you know like separate I think I'm gonna have the like looking back um the uh, basically re-evaluating gains because I think it's extremely helpful uh reminder so thank you for that it really is yeah well thank you for bringing it up um another thing that was so powerful in the in in your introduction was you talked about the the um presentation that you got an award for and you had the insight to recognize when some attending said, oh, I never thought you'd make it, which is such a ridiculous thing to say to someone, number one. And then you realizing like, hold on, like the person who you didn't think would make it and the person you think is going to make it is the same. The only thing that changed was this poster. And I think that in medicine, that's all too common, right? It's that we are we are trained to think that external validation is the most important thing. And unfortunately, I think many people have examples like this where attendings or, or you know, your, your boss or something like that is giving you evidence to, to, to show you like yes. external validation is really the most important thing. And I think we can get, we get confused and we forget that that's actually not what matters. You're like my soul sister. I have to tell you, Chris. <laughs> no, because you like, but I had the insight, but I had a wrong, like, you know, my interpretation of it was I'm still the same person, but it doesn't matter because mm-hmm. what mattered was me winning that oral presentation at the state level and then doing the poster. Like that's what triggered the, the, you know, praise from the attending. So mm-hmm. I, I recognized it, but didn't, didn't interpret it in my favor. And I think that the behaviors I adopted after that was were were very maladaptive in the sense that I was very timid. If you can believe it, <laughs> I was kind of timid and quiet and shy when I first came. And I became oh, I started overcompensating. So when I felt threatened, I would be on the root side, which got me into trouble since then. And um, I think I was. I was worried that if I'm quiet and cry, I'm considered weak. Like, yeah. So my my interpretation was not serving me for many years. And until I, as I said, until the past year when, when things changed and I realized I can be flawed and still worthy of love and belonging, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. And I think that the best part about this conversation so far is that you are a really great example of how the past cannot change, right? We can't change the past, but what we make it mean and our interpretation of it 
can change. And if we do change our interpretation of the pa- of past events, it might mean something very different for your future. I I really hope so. And I, you know, I, I'm I'm learning and living it every day. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah. You said you said a few minutes ago that you struggle with change. Yes, it's um it's yeah, it's every time I change a location or I have to learn a new computer system and a new environment, I shrink. Like I have it somewhere in my head that I'm not good with change. So I also then behave like I'm not good with change. And um basically so I was referring mostly to when I changed from residency, when I traveled to a fellowship and I had a really kind of rough start when I, when I, when I'm new somewhere, I look for evidence of how I don't belong. And of course we find it when we look for evidence, we find it. So I always would find evidence for how I don't belong. And then I behave that way. So I get, I get irritable or I think, um, as if angry, so is it, I think there is a term in English language, a chip on one's shoulder, chip on my shoulder. Yeah. Yeah. And that has stayed with me. And that's, I have been making progress, like as if, you know, as if somebody hurt me or somebody owed me something and I had to like, but it's, it's a very, very damaging approach to relationships and life in general. And um, I'm still unlearning it. So that's one thing that happened. And then my second, so I did two fellowships. And in my second fellowship, when I went to Baltimore, I struggled so much that I like I developed symptoms of palpitations. Like I've never had palpitations before or anxiety. I think that's how I self-diagnosed. It must be anxiety attacks with severe palpitations. My attending at the time um, just made me feel. Um, I or I'm, what the words she said and the way she treated me, I made it mean that I'm not good enough. And it was so, it was so bad that my at that time husband he wrote a letter to the to the program director and he was complaining or you know he was like this is not my wife she comes she leaves uh, from home at six o'clock she comes like at six p.m. or seven p.m. and she doesn't sleep she's like a different person and she's miserable. And, um, so, and I felt kind of, or fell into a victim mentality because it was like, clearly this person had communication issues, uh, herself, but I, again, it was me who did not, who were not able to separate, like, there may be some things on my behavior. She doesn't like, like I should be doing the research protocol differently. Instead, I made it mean things about myself. And that just takes such a long time to recover from that. It took me years. So, um, but it all started because when I don't feel adequate, when I change my, the, um, the environment, I'm new somewhere, it starts with not feeling adequate, looking for evidence of it, which I find. And then it just kind of snowballs. I don't know whether they're making sense. <laughs> yeah. And that's a really, that's such an insightful, I guess it's like a, a habit almost. And I think that's, you're not alone in that. That's, that seems like something that the human brain would do. And I think that the insight as far as linking our self-worth to our careers and how people perceive us to be at our job is a really common thing for physicians because I think in many ways, so much of our personality and who we are is lost in training. And then so much so that 
we really truly do believe that our value as a human is based in our profession. I cannot tell you how how this res- how much this resonates with me because over so I've been a rheumatologist now for it's going to be 16 years and up until this past year and I still struggle with like reminding myself no that the amount of RVUs that I make per day per month does not equal my value as a person but this is what I have been conditioned I have always been employed I've never had a private uh, my own practice but basically we are I was being asked to do to do more with less time or as much as I can do and that's that's not really sustainable long term but basically that's been like I find myself being like okay so be organized with the patient and get the chart done on time labs follow-ups blah 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 and I find myself and like basically don't waste any time because when you have a blank space on your schedule or when you don't do something while you're in your office, you're wasting time. Like you're not doing something you should be doing. And I found myself behaving like that with my son, who is uh, almost, uh, soon to be six years old. Basically, we have to like, like, let's go, go, go. I don't I, I didn't used to sit down. Like I remember when he was born, uh, it took me five weeks because I've been also going through an extremely stressful period personally at the time. So that, that it has confounders, but it took me five weeks when I, I remembered the moment I'm like, you can sit down, Martina, like you, and I sat down on the floor. I put him on my knees. He was still, you know, tiny baby. And I just stared at him and I cried and I held him and I was enjoying myself. Basically mm-hmm. that was the first time when I'm like, okay, I don't have to like, basic, I was not caught on the schedule. And this is after delivery. So I was home, but I had so many stressful things happening. And I was conditioned from work, like when you're here, you have to do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. Otherwise, you're not doing enough. And um, yeah, and I'm still practicing and learning that. But um, it's hard thing to unlearn. It is, but I'm, I'm getting there. (laughs) Yeah, it's a really hard thing to unlearn. And I think that because what's underlying that is the fear, or at least what comes up a lot for the, with the people I talk to and my clients is that the fear underneath that is how do I know? Like, okay, well, if I'm if it's not like if if my worth isn't related isn't related to my career, like how do I really know that I am worthy and I have value if no one else tells me that? So. Mm-hmm it's like we we forget our own the value of our own opinion throughout the years of you know growing up and and being in society there is an assumption there's an underlying assumption that someone else has the answer about our value and our worth more than we do you're so wise i'm so impressed i <laughs> yeah and i have been listening to brene brown recently and what she says about that also resonates so much with me because, um, I mean, it has to do with external external validation of who we are. And as I said, I'm still working on it, but I feel it now. Like when I connect with my intuition and I basically, you know, I'm a good person. I do the best I can. And there is a limit. I have my son that I want to spend time with. I have people I love that I want to spend time with. And it's, and, you know, it's, I want to, it's like the joy, you said, it enhances your joy. I want to feel the joy. And I feel it when I'm not a um, slave to some external measures. Like I know what I can do and it's okay. Like basically feeling like, 
I did that this today. I can do this on a long-term basis and it's okay. Like this is me, mm-hmm. this is my limits. And um, as far as the worthiness, I remember, I think it was Sunny, Sunny's coach. She held, uh, um, I don't know whether you were at that session, but she basically had a coaching session for women physicians and she, and I'm, I hope I'm saying it right, but basically that our innate self is inherently worth, worthy of love and belonging. And it just resonated with me. And I, mm-hmm. I'm, I say that sentence to myself uh, and now I believe it. Um, and I remind myself and I fall. So I'm not perfect with my son. I sometimes raise my voice and I, then I have to remind myself, like I'm not a bad person, but I lose my uh, temper sometimes because he pushes my buttons and I don't control them perfectly, but it doesn't mean that I'm a bad person. So it's, it's a practice, it's a process and um, I'm enjoying myself more. Yeah. Yeah. And that's of course strikes a chord with me because so much of what I like to talk about and live myself now is the importance of bringing like right brain stuff, right. You know, right hemisphere of the brain stuff into life. And we're such left brain people as doctors Mm -hmm. and things like joy and fun and, um, being around people that you love is very much right brain. And I think that that's a lot of what we're missing and the perspective shifts when you're Mm -hmm. in the moment, when you're truly like, when you, when you're looking at your five week old baby and you're just being present in the moment and not worrying about your to-do list, like that is such an expansive experience in a way that, you know, going through your task list isn't, you know, and of course our life as physicians requires both of those things. But I think that the balance needs to shift more in, in favor of joy and it spills over to who we are in our careers. hundred percent. And I think what gets in the way for me about what you're saying, what gets in the way for me to do that is that, that guilt, Mm -hmm. Uh, basically, I, and you will laugh at this, but even as a medical student, and then since then as a physician resident, I had the feeling, I had this notion that when I'm not near the books, like I may not be studying for a test or anything, but if, if I'm not near the books, I'm somehow jeopardizing my career that I should be always, you know, near the books or near our home and enjoying my, or not going to a party or not going to things I would like to do because, you know, what if I can get in 20 minutes or an hour, or if I, I really should be doing this. And granted, it took me, it got me through medical school, but like, it's that, um, that pattern is still in my life right now that I turn things down. And that's what I mean. Like I'm still learning and working with it. I turn things down because I feel guilt that I should be working on my charts. I did much less. Like if I do stuff, it's mostly for like, I, for my, for my own business, but basically that I shouldn't be having fun with my girlfriend's kayaking when I could be doing this because mm. then I will be behind. There is still that mentality in me and it's a constant, you know, like, and after I listened to Brenna Brown recent, recently and the way she described this play and creativity, uh, like have a play and rest, I'm like, this is exactly me. She, um, she described it as creative people and wholehearted people. They, 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 she didn't initially know how to describe it. So she used the words uh, that they fool around and they just like, they're time slackers. And I, yeah. I had to laugh so hard because 
I was like, that's how I felt about myself before if I went to, you know, the stuff other than for work or, and it just makes for a hard existence. And I am now finally, as I said, this past year, I'm determining what is my like limit of what I can do and what like, and I'm not saying that all of it is play. It's also just rest. I need time to mm-hmm. myself. I need time with my son. I need time to sleep in order to feel like I can give a hundred percent. And I am now finally okay with it. Like this is fine. And that includes, you know, play. So I now accept invitations. I would have never accepted, um, a year ago, like going kayaking with my girlfriends, uh, um, going whale watching before I would say, no, I spent, I will stay home because I will get some cleaning done. I will maybe read some article and it's just not the same when you uh, once, uh, what am I, how am I trying to say it? When my f- cup is filled with the joy and experiencing life, I'm much more likely to accomplish the tasks that I had on my list with less time or deciding, okay, maybe this doesn't need to be done. You know, mm-hmm. like basically, okay, this I'm not going to do it. It uh, doesn't get done, period. So that's one of the things that I have learned over the past year and um, coaching. Yeah, I think that's a great perspective because the guilt thing is probably one of the most common reasons that adults don't play. It's that right. if I'm not if I'm not being productive, then... I'm wasting, I'm I'm a waste or I'm wasting time. And I think it's a subtle belief that if I'm, if I'm, I need to be productive because if I'm not productive, then what? I'm not worthy. Worthy. Yes. And many things go back to that. And as you just said, so succinctly is that when you spend time resting or playing, then you're more productive you're more innovative, you're more creative, you get more things done, or you have a bigger picture of your life to recognize the things that you don't need to worry about anymore. And you can just cross them off the list forever (laughs) for good. So that's the power in that. And I love that how you shared that transition, because that's, it's so important. I know that our time is coming to an end. Um, So is there anything else that you want to share or that come up came up for you that you want to make sure my list my listeners know anything else we we didn't get to talk about for my own time I'm so yeah, sorry yeah yeah we talk about it though no no what I was gonna say is that it, it's so interesting and surreal that you brought up the kind of imposter syndrome and um doubt self-doubt because I just saw a patient who has chronic pain she not, she's not formally diagnosed with fibromyalgia but she um she, I mean, she has symptoms consistent with it. And I started talking to her in more detail and it turns out that she has guilt because she has gained some weight. And, um, also she didn't pass, uh, some administrative kind of task test. She would like to volunteer with, um, hospice patients and she was not good. Uh, like she didn't pass some, like, I don't even, she didn't explain, but basically there was some kind of a, like, you know, written test related to administrative task and she didn't pass it so she holds not believe that she's not good enough she cannot apply to any hospice volunteer position and plus she feels like she doesn't cannot go anywhere or deserve joy because she's overweight or mm-hmm. and I tried to basically explain it to her but uh, with what I was gonna say is that that like it's imp- having um, self-doubt and kind of shaming ourselves and feeling like we're not good enough, it's really important for our neurobiology because it changes our brain. And when our brain 
detects that that limbic system when it detects threat it can produce bunch of symptoms in, and like palpitations headaches um you know irritable bowel sy- syndrome type of symptoms and including pain and mm-hmm. that's that's so that's what i was going to just try to tie it to neuroplasticity because it's a truth for myself and that's one of the like what that's one of the biggest reasons i'm doing this work with fibromyalgia patients and like i have to do it on myself i have to be able to accept like that self-love the believing that i'm worthy of love and belonging the way i am but working on my you know uh behaviors or things that are not perfect or not perfect but optimal for my life working on it but still believing and giving myself love and support is ext- like that's what i then can show to my patients because uh it affects my pain it doesn't only affect my relationships how i present myself but also the level of my uh symptoms uh, specifically i have you know some back pain so the way i was going to tie it in is that we um in medicine we often like pretend that it's all just anatomical lesion location and then we medicate it accordingly and we have to accept that neurobiology is a real thing that mind body syndrome exists and it can produce pain so even though I'm a rheumatologist and I prescribe medications, I work with my patients on this stuff, the stuff we discussed. And there is not enough, I'm still trying to figure out a better way how to, you know, um, kind of incorporate it all. It's not really the appointments, medical appointments are not conducive to thorough discussion about this, but at least trying to, starting to direct my patients towards and like uh, resources, so books and podcasts that is, you know, that has been rewarding. Yeah, I'm really glad you brought this up because this has been really in my own personal life with chronic daily headaches. I found the exact same thing that what goes on in our brains, our thoughts and our limiting beliefs and and our stress and everything like that is probably the number one cause of physical symptoms. And I see a lot in my pelvic pain patients too. So I'm really, mm-hmm. really glad that you, you said that because there is definitely a link between our mind and our body that we have forgotten about in medicine. And maybe we can have a do-over or another session to uh, discuss follow-up. It was such a pleasure, Kristen. Thank you for having me and also for giving me, for, you know, talking about things that I could use for myself in terms of the the gap and gain reminder. I I love that and I'm going to incorporate it in my life. So I appreciate that. I appreciate you and thank you for being here. Hey there, just wanted to take some quick time here to let you know that if you have been thinking about doing a podcast and it feels really overwhelming and you like the idea of podcasting, but the other stuff like the editing and production feels too overwhelming, I wanted to let you know about the people who now edit and produce my podcast, which is Pretty Easy Podcasts. And for the first year and a half of my podcast, I was doing everything myself. And I had tried to contract out editing and it was really got some really, really bad (laughs) results. So I was hesitant to try again, but I'm so glad that I did because working with Pretty Easy Podcasts has been so amazing. They can get your shows recorded, posted with a complete podcast studio at your disposal. You could record from home, your office or the park or really anywhere. And then they totally cater to your schedule and 
they're, it's just so easy to work with them. I cannot say enough good things. So if it's been on your mind to do a podcast, then definitely check out Pretty Easy Podcast at prettyeasypodcast.com and sign up today. It's super affordable and it's so fun working with them. So definitely check it out. Mm-hmm.